Please turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. John's Gospel and chapter 10. And I'll read verses 30 down through verse 39. Chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I I and the Father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. We continue our study this morning in this tenth chapter of John's Gospel. Last week we considered the previous paragraph beginning at verse 19 in which the words of Jesus had created a division, a controversy among the Jews, especially the leaders among the Pharisees. Because of his statements in the earlier part of the chapter, his I am statements, he said, I am the door, the entrance into heaven, the heavenly kingdom, I am the good shepherd of the sheep. In other statements that he had made previously, Jesus was declaring himself to be the Christ, to be the Savior of the world. And the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, were not believing in him. And Jesus called them hirelings, thieves and robbers of the sheep, and they were enraged at him. And beginning in verse 24, they gathered around him as he walked outside The temple in the portico of Solomon, verse 24, they were encircling around him and they asked him a question. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Several things we want to see in this passage this morning. The first is that the Jews charged Jesus with blasphemy. They charged him with blasphemy. Their question in verse 24 was not from sincerity or desire to know the truth. It was rather from their hostility against him to entrap him in his words. And in verses 26 down through verse 30, Jesus gave them more of an answer to their question than they could have ever asked for. He clearly asserts his own deity. In verse 27, he said, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. In verse 28, he said, I give eternal life to them. Only God can give eternal life. 
Jesus here gives eternal life to his sheep, and so Jesus is therefore God himself. He speaks of the divine power he exercises at the end of verse 28. He says, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. And then in verse 29, he attributes the same power to his heavenly father. He says, my father, and at the end of the verse, no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. The same power that belongs to his heavenly father belongs to Jesus. And so Jesus himself is equal with the father in his power. And he is God himself. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And then Jesus finished his discourse here in verse 30 with these very startling words. I and the father are one. He means, I and the Father in heaven, we are of one essence in the same God. We are two distinct persons, I and the Father, but we both share the same divine essence, two persons in the one God, I and the Father are one. This is really the same thing that John had declared in the opening part of his gospel in John chapter 1 and verse 1. John said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Christ. The Word was a divine person with the Father from eternity. He was with the Father. He was one with the Father, and he became a man in the person of Jesus This is what Jesus asserts here in verse 30, his own divinity with the Father. I and the Father are one. We are one in all of our purposes of salvation in regard to the sheep, as I have just mentioned. We are one in our eternal nature. We are one in power and majesty and glory. We are one in love and wisdom. All of the divine attributes that belong to the Father are mine. All things that the Father has are mine. I and the Father are one. And he is saying the same thing down at the end of verse 38, where he says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Simply another way of saying the same thing. I and the Father are one one in the same essence of the one God. Back in the middle of verse 29, Jesus said there, he said, my father is greater than all. He spoke of his father as God. There is no one like him. He is above all. He is greater than all other beings as God. But in verse 30, he says, I and the father are one. And so just as the father is greater than all, I and the Father are one, so I myself am greater than all, just like my heavenly Father is as we share in the one God. So in verse 30, Jesus made a very clear statement of his deity. I and the Father are one. And this was very clear how the Jews understood his statement by their response immediately in verse 31. The Jews took up stones to st- again to stone him, and they did so because 
as they say in verse 33, Jesus, whom they thought was only a man, he had committed blasphemy by making himself out to be God. There was an Old Testament law in Israel that those who blasphemed were to be stoned to death. Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 16 said, The one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely to be put to death and all the congregation shall certainly stone him. But that law, like all others, required a judicial procedure in which there were to be witnesses before a judge who was to prove the guilt of the one who had committed the crime before the sentence was carried out. But the Pharisees here, they were so filled with rage that they bypass any judicial procedures and they take justice into their own hands. They make themselves to be the judges and the executioners. At the same time, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. He says again, John says again, because they had attempted this on previous occasions, but their attempts had failed. And here in verse 31, John is telling us that they actually did pick up stones. And they had the stones in their hands. And they were about to stone Jesus to death. But before they could do so, Jesus answers them with a question in verse 32. Jesus answered them and said, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them Are you stoning me? We notice the calm courage of Jesus in the face of this very real danger. That he was encircled here by this angry mob of men who were enraged at what he had said and they had no regard for any justice. They had stones in their hands and their hands were raised about to stone him to death, and Jesus calmly responds to them without fear, and he asks them a question. I showed you many good works. I have showed them to you. You have seen them with my own eyes. They were all good works, and there were a great many of them, and they were all from my heavenly Father who sent me to perform them. This was the whole life of Jesus that he always went about doing good. Mighty miracles of compassion. He healed every kind of disease and sickness. He cleansed the lepers. He gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. His whole life was a life of going about doing good in every kind of way. At the end of verse 32, he simply asked them, For which of them are you stoning me? He knew that they were about to stone him. He acknowledges it. They were about to stone him, but all he wishes to know is for which of the good works that I have done are you stoning me? In verse 33, the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They denied that it was because of any of his good works that they wished to stone him, but rather that it was because of blasphemy. By his own statements, 
in which he called God his heavenly father, by which he had said, I and the father are one. They thought he, being only a man, he was making himself out to be God, and so this was blasphemy. He was a man. But he was not a man making himself out to be God. He actually was God. And it was actually the other way around. It was not that he was a man who was making himself out to be God. He was actually God from eternity. And he was God who had come down from heaven and became a man. And so now he is God and he is man in one person forever, the savior of the world. They did not recognize him. And so they accused him here of blasphemy. And so the Jews accused him of blasphemy. The second thing we wish to see here is that Jesus turns to the scripture. He turns to the scripture. He answers their charge of blasphemy now in verses 34 through 36. In verse 34, Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? In verse 33, they charged him with blasphemy, a most serious charge, one that was worthy of death, according to the Old Testament law. And so Jesus here is in this most threatening situation. He is encircled by this angry mob with stones raised in their hands. They have one desire to put him to death. And the death penalty for blasphemy, it had been carried out in Old Testament Israel, and they wanted it carried out now with Jesus in the midst of this, what seems to be a terrifying situation, where does Jesus here turn for his help, for his defense, and for his argument against their charge? He turned to the scripture in verse 34. Has it not been written in your law? And here Jesus reveals his entire view of life. That the scriptures are to be our help. They are to be our guide and our comfort in every time of trouble and need. The Old Testament scriptures were the sole authority by which all religious controversies were to be settled The scriptures, they were the only way to determine what is true and false. The scriptures are the only way to understand the world that we live in. In verse 33, they accused him of blasphemy. In verse 34, the very first place Jesus turned to, Facing that charge was to the scripture. He said, has it not been written in the book? 
in your law. This was his habit of life. In all the trials of his life to turn to the scriptures. We saw it all the way back in Luke chapter 2 when he was only 12 years old. And he was in the temple. And he was listening to the scribes. And he was asking them questions. No doubt asking them questions from the scriptures. We see it again in the very beginning of his ministry when he was tempted by the devil and three times he rebuked the devil and said to him, it is written, and he quoted from the Old Testament scriptures. Scripture, scripture was the lens through which Jesus saw all of life. And so we should not be surprised on this occasion when he is accused of blasphemy, he turns Immediately to the scriptures. They accused him of blasphemy because of their law out of the scriptures. They were the scribes and Pharisees. They thought they knew the scriptures and they thought they had the law on their favor. But Jesus knew the law better than they did. And he is going to tell them here there is another part of your law that you have not considered, and he brings his defense here from the law of the Old Testament scripture. Has it not been written in your law? So Jesus here gives us an example that we should follow. First, when trials and troubles come upon us, what do our trials and troubles cause us to do? They cause us to look back over our own lives and to see what we have done and to see if there is any just cause for our trouble and our trials because of how we have lived. And that's what Jesus is doing here in verse 32. He looks back as he begins to answer them. He looks back over his life. He said, I showed you many good works from the Father And Jesus could look back and see only goodness in his entire life. And so there was no cause in himself for this trial that had come upon him. I showed you many good works, he said. And so it should be with us as well, that we should live uprightly and in the path of what is good and what is right. We will not do so perfectly as Jesus did, but we should live with a good conscience always going to the blood of Jesus, always living by the grace of God best we can so that we might walk in our integrity when trials and troubles come, we may be able to say with a good conscience that we have done what is good and right. A second thing that we learn here from Jesus' example is that we should know and study the Holy Scriptures. Just as he did here in verse 34. So that when trouble comes, when trials come upon us, we may be able to turn to those scriptures. And as we'll see, Jesus found a seemingly remote portion of scripture. And from that scripture, he defended himself. And we should know the scriptures as well so that when our troubles come, we may be able to turn to them to find our help, our support, and our comfort in time of need. 
So we come this morning to the third part of our sermon. The third point that we make from our passage is that Jesus turns the tables now on the Pharisees. I mean, they have accused him of blasphemy, and now Jesus turns that accusation back upon them. We see at the end of verse 34 the scripture that he turned to. It's found in Psalm 82 and verse 6. And in that verse, God said, I said, you are gods. He says to them, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are gods. Now the one who speaks there in that verse, at the end of verse 34, I said, that is God who speaks there. God said in that psalm, you are gods. We'll see it in a moment. And so then in the beginning of verse 35, where it says, if he called them gods, the he is really God himself from verse 34. The end of verse 34, God is the one who said, you are gods. And then in the beginning of verse 35, if he, God, called them gods. Now, the New American Standard would have been better, I think, to put the capital H there, as they normally do. And there are Bibles, the New King James does so, but when you leave it without the capital H, you wonder who the he is. And the only right answer is that it is God himself who is speaking. And we'll see that in the psalm. And Jesus now is making his defense to their charge of blasphemy. In verses 35 and 36, he says this, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus' overall argument here is from the lesser to the greater. In verse 35, if God himself had called men gods on earth, men on earth, if he called them gods in the word that came to them, the word of God in the scripture that cannot be broken, and if that was not blasphemy, because it is clearly in the scripture, then how can you, he says, call me who is so much greater than any man on earth, how can you accuse me, whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, that I am blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? That's his basic argument there in those verses from the lesser to the greater. And we'll be looking at that more as we proceed. There are several things we need to address to understand these verses as we should. Jesus is being accused of blasphemy here by the Pharisees. And his answer comes from Psalm 82 and verse 6. It's always a good rule of interpretation that whenever an Old Testament passage is quoted in the New Testament, that we should go back and see that Old Testament passage in its context so that we can fully understand its meaning, and its use in the new. So that's what we want to do. Turn back to Psalm 82, from which Jesus makes this quote.
And Psalm 82, we see the verse from which Jesus quotes in the beginning of verse 6. I said, you are gods. Those are Jesus' words. Now we note that Jesus does not even quote an entire verse of Scripture for his defense. He quotes only a portion of Scripture, only a small phrase. And in fact, his entire argument rests upon that one word, God's, at the end of that phrase. Now, the context of this psalm is that it was written to the rulers, to the judges in Israel who presided over the courts of justice. But the rulers of Israel, they did not enact justice according to God's word. They were corrupt in their ways and they were unjust in their dealings with men. We look back in verse 1. Verse 1 says, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. God is the one here who comes now and stands in the midst of the rulers of his people, especially those of Israel. He comes now to pronounce judgment upon them. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Verse 2, how long, how long, he says to them, will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked. The nation of Israel is coming under God's judgment. They have been under his judgment. And in these surrounding psalms, in this portion of the psalms, the frequent cry of the psalmist was, how long, O Lord, will we continue under your judgment? And God's response to them is, how long will you continue to judge unrighteously and show partiality to the wicked? And then he goes on to tell them what they ought to have done. Vindicate, verses 3 and 4, vindicate the weak and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and destitute, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. This was the God-given duty of all rulers and judges of the nation to deal justly, fairly, to defend the poor and the weak, to rescue the oppressed from the wicked This is what they should have done, but they failed to do so. They were evil rulers who turned a deaf ear to all that God had said. Verses 3 and 4 is found. These things are found in many passages of the Old Testament. So he pronounces judgment upon them. Verse 5, they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness, and the foundations of the earth are shaken. So... They were like blind men, he says. They had no understanding. They were walking about in the darkness of their own ways and justice was perverted and the result was that the whole foundation of society was being shaken. And then in the beginning of verse 6, we have the words that Jesus quoted in John chapter 10. I said, you are gods and you are all sons of the Most High. Verse 7 and 8, Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is thou who dost possess all the nations. Now, in the beginning of verse 6, in those words, I said you are gods, the word gods there is the Hebrew word Elohim for God. It is the same word used in the creation in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. It is the same word used perhaps thousands of times in the Old Testament. 
It is the same word used in this psalm back in verse 1. God, Elohim, takes his stand in his own congregation. So we might wonder, well, how does, why does God apply his own name to men in this verse? How can this be that he would call mere men gods? First, by placing his name upon men, he cannot mean that men are in some way divine or equal with God, as some have thought from this verse. Because in the Bible, there is clearly only one God. There is clearly only one being of infinite power, majesty, and glory, only one who is worthy of worship and the praise of men. I am the Lord, God says in Isaiah, and there is no other God before me, a righteous God and a Savior, and there is none except me. He says, turn to me, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none other. There is only one God who is the creator. There is only one God who possesses all the glorious divine attributes. And this verse can never be used to think otherwise. The foolishness of any kind of a thought like that is found really in the surrounding context. In verse 6, the second half of verse 6, he says, And all of you are sons of the Most High. Those whom we call gods here, they are only sons, and God alone is the Most High. They are sons of him, and they will die themselves. In verse 7, nevertheless, you will die like men. So they are all perishing. While it is true there is only one God, it is also true that God places the honor of his name upon men at times in the Bible. We find this, for example, right in the beginning in the creation. We were made in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 21, in the image of God, in the image of God, in the likeness of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And then the very first thing God said to them is be fruitful and multiply. And he said, subdue the earth and rule over it and everything that moves on it. So in the creation... God placed the honor of his name upon us because we were made in his image and likeness. We were to be his representatives. We were appointed by him to be his vice regents to carry out his will. The image bearers of God were to rule over his creation. And we find the same thing really here in verse 6, that these were rulers and princes who were honored by God by his placing his name upon them because they were his representatives. They were appointed by him to carry out his work of ruling over his people with justice. They were his appointed representatives. That's why he calls them gods. Small g, I said, you are gods. But they had failed. They had corrupted their office. They had committed great injustice against the people. The entire psalm is a condemnation to them. He is telling them, this is what I have called you. I have called you gods. I have placed this honor of my name upon you, but you have fallen from this honor. 
They were like gods to other men. Yes, for they were only perishing men to the Most High. And that's why he says in verse 7, Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any of the princes. And then he closes the psalm in verse 8. Arise, he says, O God, and judge the earth, for it is thou who dost possess all the nations. The psalmist closes the psalm with this cry for the great God to arise and come and judge all of these wicked rulers of the earth, not just in Israel, but among all the nations, because all the nations do belong to him, and he is the judge of all We remember back in John chapter 10 that the scribes and the Pharisees, they had accused Jesus of blasphemy because they thought he was only a man making himself out to be equal with God. Now, blasphemy is a violation of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Blasphemy is any cursing, any profaning, any abusing of God's name Upon our lips. But blasphemy goes beyond just words that we might speak. It includes our claiming, anyone claiming to be among his people, anyone identifying himself with God's name and yet not living according to his word, and thereby bringing dishonor and shame upon his name. This is the way Paul speaks of blasphemy in Romans chapter 2, where he condemns the hypocrisy of the Jewish people of his day. He says to them, you preach that one should not steal. Do you steal? You boast in the law. Through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? And then he quotes from the Old Testament, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It is written, he says. Blasphemy includes taking God's name to ourselves, identifying ourselves with him, and yet living contrary to his word and bringing shame upon his name. And that's exactly what these ancient rulers in Israel had been doing in this psalm. And God was condemning them for blaspheming his name. He had given them the honor of bearing his name. He gave them that title, gods, but they had lived contrary to his word and they were bringing shame upon his name. And so the whole psalm is a condemnation for their blaspheming his name. So we turn back now to John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, at the end of verse 34, Jesus quotes verse 6 from that psalm. I said, you are gods. Now, when the scribes and the Pharisees, they were men who knew the Old Testament scripture. And when they heard that quote from Jesus, they would have recognized what psalm that came from, from Psalm 82. And they would have known that that psalm was a condemnation upon the unjust rulers of Israel for blaspheming his name. And they would have realized the connection that they themselves were the present rulers of Israel. 
And just like God had condemned them, the old rulers in Psalm 82, so now Jesus, by quoting this verse, was condemning them for their unjust rule among the people of Israel. They had accused him of blaspheming, but Jesus here turns the tables upon them and accuses them of blasphemy by not ruling according to God's word. And in such unjust ways among his people. The injustice of the scribes and the Pharisees is seen so often in the gospel records. They were heartless men. They were cruel. They were unjust. We see it right here in John's, cha- in John's gospel. We'll turn to a couple of passages back in John chapter 5 for a moment. Back in John Chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus came to the pool of Bethesda. The pool of Bethesda, and he healed the man who was 38 years in lameness. And we read down in verse 6, Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Now this would... We would, think, we would think that this would be a, an occasion of great joy and rejoicing that here is a man, 38 years, unable to walk. And by the word of Christ, he now walks, he picks up his pallet, and he begins to walk. But not so with the Pharisees. Because in the end of verse 9, it was the Sabbath day, and therefore the Jews were saying to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your own pallet. The fact that a man who had been laying on that pallet for 38 years could now walk meant nothing to them. They had no compassion. They had no mercy. Their only concern was their man-made rule that someone should not be carrying their pallet on a Sabbath day. There's their injustice, their condemning of the weak and the needy. The very same thing Psalm 82 condemns. We find the same thing in John chapter 9. If we turn to John chapter 9 for a moment, Jesus here healed the man who was born blind. The Pharisees ended up casting him out of the synagogue because he believed in Jesus. They excommunicated him. We read in verse 24, So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, this is what they say, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Verse 25, he therefore answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. And so they did not care that a man who had been born blind could now see. They only desired their own honor and their own positions to be maintained. We see down in verse 34, they answered and said to him, You were born entirely in your sins. And are you teaching us? And they put him out, mean they cast him out, they excommunicated him from the synagogue. So we see this same kind of behavior throughout all of the gospel records with the scribes and the Pharisees. You remember when Matthew was converted? Matthew had a great dinner in his house. He invited many tax gatherers and sinners to the dinner with Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees were outside. 
They were angered that Jesus was sitting with these sinners. And Jesus had to say to them, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. He quotes from Hosea chapter 6. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They did not know what it meant to have compassion. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees condemned Jesus' disciples as they were walking through the fields and they were eating the heads of grain. It was a Sabbath day. They condemned them for it. Jesus had to say to them again, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus went down through that long list of condemnations and woes upon the Pharisees. Woe to you, he says, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, of justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So the Pharisees, the Pharisees of Jesus' day were just like those rulers in Psalm 82. They oppressed the poor and needy. They had no compassion for the afflicted and the downcast, and God was entering into judgment with them. And when Jesus quotes the words at the end of verse 34, John chapter 10 and verse 34, back in John chapter 10 when he says, I said you are gods, the Pharisees would have realized that he was speaking in regard to them. And he was pronouncing his judgment upon them as well. Back in John 9, for a moment, back in John chapter 9 and verse 39, Jesus declares why he came into the world. He says, verse 39, for judgment I came into this world. For judgment I have come. That those who do not see, those who acknowledge they do not see, may see, may have spiritual eyes given to them, and those who see, those who claim they see, like the scribes and the Pharisees, may become blind. They are actually blind, and they will become even more blind. So Jesus came for this judgment upon such men and rulers like the Pharisees. And that's what he's pronouncing upon them there, chapter 10, at the end of verse 34, when he quotes from Psalm 82, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods. They had accused him of blasphemy for saying that he was God, the Son of God, But Jesus turns the tables upon them and tells them that they are the ones who are actually blaspheming by their own evil lives and by their rejection of him as the Savior. Has it not been written in your law, I said to you, you are God's. You remember those first words in Psalm 82. 
verse 1. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Who is the one who ultimately comes and takes his stand among men and executes judgment? It is Jesus. It is Jesus himself who is the one who comes and executes judgment. That's what he said. For this reason, I have come into the world for judgment. And then Psalm 82 and verse 8 closes with that prayer. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is thou who does possess all the nations. And Jesus possesses all the nations now. And he is the one who will return and answer that prayer and bring about the judgment of all wicked rulers in the earth. So Psalm 82 is actually a prayer for the coming glorious kingdom of the Messiah in the new heavens and the new earth, in which everything spoken there will be fulfilled in him. He will possess all the nations and he will judge all the wicked rulers of the earth. Here in verse 35, if he called them gods in that psalm, to whom the word of God came. That's what happened back in Psalm 82. He called them gods. And the word of God came to those rulers. The written word. It was the written word that came to them. But here with the scribes and the Pharisees. It is not the written word that has come to them only. It is the incarnate word. It is the eternal word of the living God. The word who was God has become flesh and dwelt among them. And there the written word stands before them and condemns them for their rule in Israel. He judges them by his word in his first coming. But he will judge them with eternal destruction in his second coming. The judgment has begun The judgment of Psalm 82. Arise, O God, and come in judgment. It has already begun here in Jesus' words. Has it not been written in your law? I said, you are God's. So Psalm 82 was written not just for rulers of Israel, but for all evil rulers in this world. We have a very great blessing in this country because we are exempt from the oppression and the tyranny of evil and wicked rulers. But a large part of human history, in fact, the majority of human history, is the oppression, the tyranny of wicked men over the people. And that's the way it is today throughout the world in so many nations, especially upon the people of God who believe in Jesus. We see more and more of it even in our own land. Rulers using their power to oppress, to to suppress the gospel and to persecute the people of God. But the time is coming when the King of Kings will return and he will come in great power and majesty and he will execute judgment upon all of these terrible rulers and they will come to an end. 
Psalm 82 will be fulfilled when Christ returns and takes his stand among all the princes and rulers. The prayer will be answered for him to return, and he does possess all the nations. John's vision in Revelation chapter 19 will be fulfilled. The voice of a great multitude singing hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty, comes now to reign. And he will reign in peace and justice forever. Jesus is the only hope for sinners. The only hope to enter into that kingdom that is coming. To turn from our sin, to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, to look to him and find the eternal life that he promises us here in the gospel. Jesus closed the book of Revelation In chapter 22 and verse 20, he closed the book of Revelation with these words. He said, yes, I am coming quickly. He is coming quickly at a day and an hour when we do not know and we will least expect he will appear in his glory as the great king of all kings and he will bring all men to the day of judgment and every man will have to give an account of everything that he has done. We are all sinners. We have a great many sins left to ourselves. We are condemned. We have no hope. We need forgiveness. We need cleansing. And the only way of cleansing, the only way of forgiveness is to be found in our Lord Jesus Christ, in him alone. May we all come to him and find Jesus to be the Savior. Let us pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, we pray that you would have mercy upon us today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Savior. You are the judge who is coming. But you have not come to bring judgment upon the world at this time. And the door of mercy is still opened. You are still the door and the entrance into the kingdom of God. You are still the good shepherd of the sheep. We pray that all of us would become your sheep, would humble ourselves and believe in our Lord Jesus Christ and find his cleansing and his forgiveness and his promise of eternal life. Lord, hear us now and bless your word to us In Jesus' name, amen.